Hello, I'm Mark McCurgo and welcome to the Village in the City podcast, helping you build micro-local community where you live. Welcome to our latest Village in the City podcast, and I'm very excited to be here with Susan High and Hannah Gray from the Strathcarran Hospice, and they've been doing some wonderful work based on using asset-based community development to build relationships in a different way with the community and their uh, their patients and service users in the hospice uh, and it's been featured in a paper by Cormac Russell. So Susan and Hannah please say hi and introduce yourselves. Hello everyone and thank you very much Mark for giving us this opportunity to talk about the work that we're doing at Strathcarran. I certainly think it's very exciting and I'm delighted to be able to share it. Uh, I am the Community Development Coordinator at Strathcarran Hospice and I'll pass over to Hannah to introduce herself. Hi, yep, thanks Mark for having us. Um, I'm Hannah Gray, I am a Senior Community Development Worker at Strathcarran. Fantastic, thank you both. So we're talking about work that's been described in this new paper by Cormac Russell, which is called Understanding Ground Up Community Development from a Practice Perspective. It's quite a worthy title, but actually the paper is very punchy. And it's all about the value you get from moving from what you might call community engagement uh, as a health provider, a hospice in this case, but all sorts of other institutions could think similarly, moving from community engagement to community development. And that's a really interesting move. And it has lots and lots of consequences. And what we're going to do today is get the story from Hannah and from Susan about what they've done and what the impacts have been. Uh, the link to the paper will be in the text around the podcast. You can download it free. It's open access paper. Please do download it and have a read. So, Susan and Hannah, how did you start to think about moving from community engagement to something different? So it's a, it's a story that started back in 2013. Uh, my background is as a clinical nurse specialist at Strathcarran Hospice. I, I worked in the community um, offering a, a advice and support from a clinical specialist point of view. Um, and back in 2013, we were invited to take part in a project that really, it, it, the, the, the aim of the project was to keep people out of hospital who didn't need to be, clin to, who didn't need clinically to be in hospital. Um, and we started that project really by inviting some of our existing hospice volunteers to become befrienders in the community. And it was, it, it was quite a small project and it started in the area that I was working in as a clinical nurse specialist. And so I, I, I knew people who I could refer into the project. And it, it, it was, it, that was a new direction for us. It was something that we hadn't done before, but it was almost instantly really successful. The, 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 we, we just found that people really valued having a befriender, that the family members who were caring really valued the break that they got. But I, I think the bit that was less expected for us around that was the reciprocal benefit. So the benefit felt by the volunteers and how, how much they felt that that relationship changed from being a relationship of a helper providing help to someone who needed it. The relationship changed from that to a reciprocal friendship and how quickly that happened and how, how much benefit was felt by, by everyone. And I think at that point, 
we kind of felt that maybe we'd stumbled on something, that maybe there was something in communities that we hadn't quite been aware of. So Strathcarton at that point invested a little bit more and my job moved more towards the community development, community engagement side. And I, I, I gave up a large part of my clinical role. Um, and and uh, that that was a personal journey for me, and I, I, one that I actually found much easier than I expected to. But that's that's a, a different story. But we moved into community engagement, and we tried different ways of engaging with communities, and we felt a bit as if we were banging our head against the brick wall. Sometimes we just weren't quite managing to. To, to make the relationships that we really wanted to make with the communities. And I think one of the things that we realised that we were in doing this community engagement, we were reinforcing the idea that, that, that clinicians held the, the, the power and we held the key to managing people's health and wellbeing at end of life. And by doing the community engagement, I think we were reinforcing that idea. And we we were becoming aware of the the wealth of capacities and assets and resources that are in the community but I don't think we were quite acknowledging or recognizing the importance of that and certainly through my clinical career I'd been aware of how important family and friends were and how important social networks were but I think at that point we just weren't quite making the connections and we began to see that the, uh, the when we were going into communities and, and doing community engagement, we were going in with our agenda. We were going in to ask our questions. We were making the decisions, really. It was almost a needs assessment was what we were doing. And we just began to realise the, the limitations of that. We were involved in communities, but the power was still lying very much with us. And, and, and we were labelling people. So people were... People were patients or there were people who were living with long-term conditions or there were carers, but we were labelling people. And I think we've found since that that's a really unhelpful thing to do. I'd have to say we did all of this with the very best of intentions. And this, from, from when we started back in 2013, it's been a learning journey for us. It's been a real journey of, of discovery in many different levels. But... What we wanted to do, what we were beginning to realise was important, was to build a more equal relationship with the communities and the people. And we were at that point of, of, of realising that that was where we wanted to go when we heard Cormac Russell speak at a Hospice UK conference, and it really resonated. And we came back and gave that some more thought, and, and, and then Cormac um, hosted a asset-based community development masterclass down in Birmingham and we're now talking June 2018 20, June 2019 uh, and Hannah and I both went to that it was a two-day masterclass and and that was where our direction changed really that that was when we heard Cormac talk we thought that really he really articulately described what we were feeling inside at the time so that he, he put into words what we were feeling and what we really weren't at that time quite able to put into words so he spoke about principles at ABCD about how important it is to pay close attention to to the power relationship that was something that was that was very much in our minds at the time 
He talked about a three-lane model. That, again, was something that was very much in our minds at the time, that we were becoming aware of the, the, the dangers and the harm that can be done by professional overreach in, in all sorts of different ways. Um, <coughs> he spoke about the importance of starting where, <coughs> where the community is at and not with our agenda. And again, that was something that we felt would been banging our heads against the brick wall because we were starting with our agenda and, and, and people weren't engaged in them, you know, hardly surprisingly so really. And, and one of the most important things that, that we learned from Cormac at, at, at that time was how important it is to go at the speed of trust. And I think having spent more than 20 years as a specialist clinician, I was very much used to things happening really quickly. And if I said that I wanted something done, then generally it was done quite quickly. And, and, and Cormac really encouraged us to, to slow that right down. So I, I think that that's the background to why we thought that asset-based community development was the right road for us to explore. And, and the journey from there has, yeah. has been amazing. Yeah. So I'm thinking that before we go on to that journey, it would be good just to briefly, if you can let us know, what, what does a hospice do? I, I know that lots of people on the call know, but maybe there are people who are listening to it who aren't familiar with that concept. So maybe you could just outline what's a hospice about? So the hospice core business is to enable people to live life to the full, to the very end. And that's that that is that overarches everything that we do it is about about people living as actively and being as participative as they can to the to the end we have a, a number of services we have a, a, an inpatient unit and services that are based in the building but for many years we've had a lot of services that are outward facing that are community services but professional community services and only over the last 10 years have we really begun to look at changing the relationship that the hospice has with the community to a, a, a more reciprocal relationship with the community in the, in, in the same way as our volunteers were developing a more reciprocal relationship with, with individuals. The hospice hopes to do that and is working towards doing that with the communities that we're serving. Excellent, thank you. So you've heard Cormac speak, you're thinking, oh, there's some good stuff here. This and, and, and there's things about changing the relationships, changing the power dynamics, changing the agendas. Uh, so how, what happened from there? How did it develop? So at, at that time, we, had, we were in the process of submitting a bid to the National Lottery Community Fund. And we decided at that point that we would tweak that bid a little bit and that would enable us to become a learning site for nurture development, which is the asset-based community development um, institute. And, and we have um, entered a relationship with Cormac and nurture development where we've been mentored through that journey over the last two and a half years. Um, we were very fortunate, I have to say, in, in some respects, in, in maybe very small number of respects, that when the pandemic hit, Cormac, who normally was all over the world and never spent two nights in the same bed, um, he, was, he was then grounded in Dublin. And so he decided that he would mentor us personally himself. And I think we've been extremely fortunate 
to have that. And so we we entered a relationship with them as a as a learning site, and we then employed three community builders, of which Hannah was one. She's she's now been um, promoted to a new role, but I think Hannah can probably say an awful lot more about that community builder role than I can. Yes, Hannah, let's hear about the community builder role, please. Huh. Um, so we started in 2020 and I think the three of us um, were put into post in the January um, and we were just sort of finding our feet and getting to grips with things when the pandemic hit. So our journey um, with community building has possibly been completely different to, to what we thought it was going to be. Um, but at the same time, different opportunities were presented to us instead. So um, what what specifically would you like to know, Mark? Because I could talk about this all week. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Susan introduced you as a community builder role. So how is that different to maybe some of the ways that you've worked before? Community building to me is more about um, asset-based community-driven efforts rather than um, setting up groups or um, developing things for, you know, um, developing projects really in a community. Um, When when I think about it being community-driven, that's that's sort of the very essence of community building to me, really. Um, So compared to other roles that I've done, community building is more about getting to know individuals, um, discovering what's there initially, so um, treasure mapping, but not necessarily in that traditional asset mapping way. So not, oh, they've got a library and oh, they've got, um, I don't know, um, these services available to them. Instead, it's about going and chatting to folk and finding out, oh, this is Betty and she loves to make jam. And 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 those those specific diamonds, I guess, in communities and finding your community connectors. So the people who know more about the people around them, that the natural sort of folk who you would go to 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 find out what's happening in the community at that very sort of grassroots citizen level. Um, So once we'd done that sort of discovery, it was then kind of more natural to move on to the connection stage um, and connecting people together who perhaps had the same interests. Um, And in Denny, where I worked, that was sort of centered around litter picking. Um, and I think people can think what on earth does litter picking have to do with hospice mission Um, and the answer is loads (laughs) Um, but you just um, you just kind of have to look hard and think about it in a different way so I I think one one thing that we have found and it's a question that we've been asked a lot and when we've been doing the community building and getting down into that very grassroots level of communities, and as Hannah says, really paying a lot of attention to discovering what's there and connecting it. And sometimes what you discover is there's a common interest in litter picking or there's a common interest in uh, one thing that Hannah discovered in Denny was a common interest or a common sadness maybe that during the pandemic, the the Remembrance Day uh, 
activities as they normally are in Denny couldn't take place. And, and so, so finding these common interests, but as Hannah said, on the face of it, what on earth has that got to do with hospice or what has that got, got to do with end of life? But but as Tana said, it has loads to do with it. So everyone who's involved in these litter picking groups, everyone who is experiencing that sadness about the, the, the Remembrance Day, but all of these people will have contact with ageing, death, dying, loss, bereavement. Everyone, it's, it, it's part of life and it's part of all of our lives. And I think that really, that, that speaks to how much we try now to avoid labelling people because people are, are, are a really rich tapestry of all of the different things that make them up and death and dying and, and loss and living with long-term conditions, they're all just but a part of that rich tapestry. So it's it's, it's unnatural mm -hmm. to try and pick out one thing about that. Mm -hmm. And I think what Hannah and the other community builders did really was, and I think this is a, this is a really crucial part of ABCD, they put hospice core business on one side and got to know the community and got to know I wouldn't say everything about the community because I don't think you ever do know that, but got to know more than we ever previously would have done. Mm -hmm. I think by dropping that agenda, that was really where we where we find the richness in communities. When you go in um, in a sort of um, using a deficit based approach. Um, thinking right where, how am I going to find these people who need who need me yeah. <laughs> you're you're going to find a whole different range of folk than if you go in chatting to people and finding out why they're valuable and um, finding out what skills they would like to contribute um, to the well-being of others. Um, Cormac says that you should get to know your neighbours before you meet them and we sort of walk alongside communities so that they can uh -huh, use what they've got to get to know each other better so that if they were to become unwell, if they were to become bereaved, um, they have they have that natural, authentic neighbourhood network beside them to see them through. So one of the things I'm hearing is that rather than setting up a project to do what you think ought to be good for the community, you're, you're for one thing, you're putting your desire to be a better hospice which undoubtedly you have, but you're putting that on one side for the, for the time being. And you go out to the community and ask them, really ask open questions and get to know people. Hey, what do you love to do? What are your skills? What are your passions? Uh, and then things emerge from that that mean that you can partner with the community in litter picking or, or the Denny Poppies project, which is a marvellous thing, by the way, folks. I'll add a link to the podcast material because it's well worth following up on. It's a lovely project. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're kind of enabling and joining in with that um, and then people are getting to know you and therefore the hospice a bit uh, so that when perhaps people in the community are in a position where they may need some of your help uh, you're already there and um, yeah, absolutely Mark and I think that's uh, that's such an important impact of the work that we've done and I, I think I, I, I have to say that 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 ability to put the hospice core business on one side when we're employed by the hospice was quite a courageous thing for the hospice to allow us to do that that was that was a bit of a, a leap into the unknown and, and and took quite a lot of 
bravery and trust, actually. And, and I'm very grateful for that trust that was that was shown in us. But I think that's been the, the benefits of that and the impacts of that have really shown the value of being courageous enough to think, let's put this this power that we hold, that we're the experts and we're the specialists and we have a monopoly on death and dying. Let's actually pass that over to communities and see what they want to do and, and, and what is their agenda and how can we walk alongside them. And, and, and the impact of that's been huge. So perhaps you could say a bit more about how that impact has emerged and evolved. And what were the first signs you noticed that interesting new things were happening as you started to do this? I think we just have an entirely different relationship with the communities now. I think there are so many different ways that I could that I could give examples of this. But one thing is that the relationship is not all one way now. So uh, there has always been to some extent a two-way relationship between the hospice and the communities because we, we have that presence in the community in our retail charity shops and we fundraise. Uh, and obviously fundraising is, a, is a, an essential, is a, an absolute necessity. So, so there, were, there were a lot of people who supported the hospice financially, but not everyone is able to support the hospice financially, not and particularly now, you know, as we move into this horrible period that we're in. And I think what we've seen is people being able to contribute to the to, to what the hospice does in all sorts of different ways that are not financial. So uh, uh, one example of that is we have, um, we, we asked the community if they could help us with um, little fabric hearts that we use in pairs in the hospice. And one fabric heart stays with the patient when they're in and one goes home with the relative and it's a it, it's it, it's something tangible that they hold that they feel a connection and we started that during the pandemic and they've been very well received so people all over our communities now hand in pairs of hearts that they've either knitted or crocheted or made from um, sometimes beautiful materials or they've made in ceramics or in glass and and so there's that there's a, there's that that kind of different relationship, um, but also what's happened with the hospice relationship is we've become much more accessible. So just as you described, Mark, we've become I, I think a little bit less scary because we've got a, a, a different presence in the communities. And I, I know when Hannah was working in Denny, there were occasions when while she was out litter picking with people, one of them would come over and say, you know, and, and this is an absolutely true story. My husband's just been diagnosed with testicular cancer. I don't need the hospice yet, but can you tell me a little bit about what the hospice does and, and how I might access these services if I do need them? And, and through the work that we've done and the impact and what we've learned from the work that we've done, we've, we've gone on to to transform some services in the hospice to be much more accessible um, and, and, and to be accessible to people at entirely different stages in their illness. So at a much earlier stage or, um, yeah, it, 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 we've just opened the doors, I think, as a result of this. That's fascinating. And I, I think if I can bring an outside perspective, I think the hospice is have a particular challenge in this regard because it would be very easy to think oh that's a 
No, oh, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to go there. I'm going to, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's ignore that. Let's very positively not talk about that. Okay. Uh, and that gives you a, perhaps even an even bigger challenge and all sorts of different sort of services and, and, and so on. Mm. Yeah. Well, one of the really beautiful things that's happened in Denny as well is um, the snowdrop planting. So in Strathcarran, our, our symbol is the snowdrop. And um, for two years now, the litter picking group um, and and other folk in the community have have planted snowdrops and used that as you know an opportunity to talk about death and dying. You know, it's just it's just pl planting that seed. Excuse the pun <laughs> for for bringing up those conversations and breaking down that taboo. Um, so yet it might not be seen as directly being linked to the hospice, but having those conversations um, is absolutely linked to, you know, to what we do here. So you've been on this journey for uh, two or three years now. Um, yeah. Would you be able to give us a couple of lessons you've learned along the way about uh, how to go about it? <laughs> yeah. I'm not the most concise person, Mark. So <laughs> I will try my best. Um, I think I think one of the the most important things when we started out, it just it felt so so daunting. Um, you know, thinking how am I going to get alongside this community, especially when when people were were in lockdown. You know, um. And we started to kind of phrase with what was strong and not what was wrong. So we we started with the folk that we knew. Um, and even if that's just sort of one person who that happens to be, you know, I don't know, your, your auntie's friend or whoever, just go and have a conversation with them and then ask them if they know somebody else that would be willing to have a chat with you. So I, we did a lot of walking and talking in the early days just to get to know folk and saying to people, would, do you mind taking me on a walk? I don't know the area that well. Take me to your favourite place. Take me to somewhere that's special. And you can talk about the surroundings, get to know the place as well as the person. And um, there's just something really nice about having a conversation when you're walking about as well, um, when the Scottish weather will allow to yeah just to get to know people a wee bit better um, and that really for me was my favourite part of, of discovery mode was just getting out and and that really put community building it made that completely different to any other role I'd done before because you really have to make it about the people and and that's where the treasure really is isn't it so mm -hmm. uh, um I think there's been a massive amount of learning over the over the course of these couple of years. I think I think we've learned the ABCD approach. We've learned to use that framework, not not as a not as a guidebook, um, not as an instruction manual, but but as a as an approach that that you can you can bend and and but but you can use the principles and I think that's what we've learned to do is to use the principles in different communities and in different ways and I think that, that, that that's been a huge part of our learning I think as I said earlier we've really learned to move at the speed of trust we've learned to just 
slow down and not and, and and especially during the pandemic you couldn't hurry anything you had to take your time um I, I think we've one of the big things that we've learned is that we don't have a monopoly on death and dying that absolutely we have a role to play and it's a really valuable role and that what the hospice does is is something that is is special but that it, it is in its own lane so i think what, what we've really learned is that there are three lanes there is what the community can do perfectly well for themselves and actually the best thing that we can do for that is to stay out in the road we've learned that there is a there is a middle lane and quite a big middle lane where the community can do things for themselves but need that little bit of help and and we have a place in that middle lane where we can offer help to communities who who have something that they want to do, but they just need a little bit of help. Maybe they need some help with putting in a funding bid. Maybe they need some help with finding a, a, a location where they can meet and any, any number of different kinds of help. And then there is the specialist lane where there is something that only specialists can do. And, and I, I think learning, discovering that three-lane model and being able to think and being able to, to say to people who question what we're doing, it, we're not in any way diminishing that clinical expertise. We're not saying that, that communities can do it all for themselves. What we're saying is there is a lot that communities can do. There is an absolute treasure trove of capacities and skills and experience and knowledge and everything else within these communities if we just put some effort into discovering them and, and making what is invisible often, making that visible, not just to us, but to people in the communities. You know, do you know that, that there are neighbours in your street who could teach your child to knit and she really wants to learn to knit, but you don't know how? Are these kind of connections are, are, are just so important. So I think we've, we've discovered where our place is on that three-lane road. And, and we've discovered that actually there is potential harm can be done mm -hmm. by professional overreach. So uh, yeah, an awful lot of learning, Mark. A quick reminder that you're listening to the Village in the City podcast, helping you build micro local community where you live. And you can find lots more about Village in the City, our handbook, join our online community, lots of blogs and resources at villageinthecity.net, villageinthecity.net. Well, we opened up the call and the first person on the mic was Laureen from East Lothian in Scotland. Hi there. I'm not sure I've got a question. I just want to sort of see how much I've actually enjoyed listening to you both. Um, I'm part of a network in East Lothian called Support from the Start. We're... Um, concerned with the best start in life for our children so pre-birth to eight years it covers early years and it's based on a um, ABCD model and um, it was really interesting to see it tweaked and put into that concept because it's not something I would naturally have thought about that a hospice would have taken this on and yet like everywhere else what an amazing journey and amazing outcomes from it um, and I think you know really what we're all talking about at the end of the day, when we look to do this work, I'm also part of Generations Working Together, is, is relationships. Mm -hmm. And you've just demonstrated how much this separate entity doesn't need to only concern itself as relationships for those who walk in through the doors and those who are connected to those who are coming in through your doors. 
it is that bit that if we sit in a community, we're all part of that community. And I think that was just such a, a, a rich um, experience for me to sit here and listen to what you've shared. Um, really lovely. Absolutely adore your role as a community builder. I think it's supposed to say in community development or all this unusual because the, the words matter and that idea of thinking this only happens by me getting out and meeting the community and the people where they're at in their own lives and their own circumstances. Um, and that's how we really start to get to know instead of the usual thing of, well, we'll open our doors and people can come to us if they're interested. And, and then we'll work from who comes in the room. And that's not the same sort of type of development. It doesn't have the same reach and therefore it doesn't have the same depth. So I love that. I'm, I've also been very blessed to have um, nowhere near mentoring, but just short bursts of uh, Cormac. And uh, it, it just once you've had one, it doesn't leave you. It's very, very <laughs> uh, uh, and I remember glowing coming out of a, a sort of two day thing in Edinburgh with them uh, training days, and um, and realizing I had this role as a network weaver was the the expression mm-hmm. you give a network weaver that I hadn't ever thought about before, um, and and he you know you sort of take it beyond the connector. That's sort of another element of you you find out where the connectors are and then you just let them go weave. <laughs> and I thought there's so many precious ways to think about it. So, yeah, absolutely loved it. Thoroughly enjoyed what you've said. And you've got me thinking and um, was sort of renewed vigor. And I thank you for that. Much appreciated. Oh, lovely, Lorraine. Thank you very much. I, I, I think I, I think what you've just said really illustrates a lot of what our journey has been around moving away from trying to do things around a single issue so you know it doesn't matter that we work from a hospice and that you work with with younger people at a different stage in life because they're all just people you know they're not that people are not somebody who's living with a long-term condition or someone who's dying or someone who's grieving or someone with you know they're just people and that connection is is just so vital and yeah yeah thank you for those words they're really much appreciated yeah. thank you I think I think for a long time we've put people in boxes haven't we so um we put children in one box and young people in another and unwell people in a different one and and then we wonder why why there's no village to raise these children mm-hmm. and why these people who are unwell in this box or these older people in this box don't don't have community around them and it's something that's been created that we need to work to undo mm-hmm. absolutely uh, you our, our sort of ethos is it takes a village to raise a child but we go beyond that because we are not about a group of people working directly with children we're about the you know the community coming forward seeing what they need collectively we come together and see what we can do within our local communities to actually make this a better environment for our children to grow in um, and you talked about planting seeds and no pun and we say exactly <laughs> the same thing you know if we want our children to thrive uh, we have to plant them in good soil and we need to make, make sure that you know the environment around about them is right but that means that we need to look to the adults too and yeah, yeah. Where the supports yeah. are for the adults and it um, yeah, it overlaps in everything for me because one of the principles of intergenerational work is absolutely looking at 
you see a, a person or a group of people within a generation, but you absolutely look at the journey each individual has, and it's a lifelong journey. And there's all those little things that have happened all along the way that make up who this person is and their set of experiences. And therefore, that's who you're relating to, not a specific age group or a group or, you know, people that have a same postcode or whatever else. It's yeah. Yeah. And in, in the same in the same way as it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to support someone at end of life and into bereavement. Yeah. But you're, you're absolutely right. It's so much more than that. Yeah. Precious. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark, too. I appreciate coming across this. <laughs> Thank you, Doreen. Great to have you with us today. So I have a question. I imagine there are some very, very professionally skilled people in the hospice. Uh, And uh, what you seem to be saying is that's not, that's really important, but but there are other things we want to do to connect with the community. How how do those very real professionals kind of view your activities? Are they immediately clear that it's a good thing? Are they a bit dubious at first? What's your experience about that? And not immediately clear that it's a good thing. It's it it, it takes a little bit of time. I, I think it, 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 Hannah and I in in particular have been living and breathing ABCD for the last three years or so, um, and and it, it, it's easy to forget that that we live and breathe that we think in that way we use that language. And actually other people are very new to the concept of that. And so it, it, it takes time for us to explain not just what we're doing, but why and what the relevance of that is. And, and that that is actually, it's, it's adding to the hospice rather than taking away from it. And it's, it, it, it's complementary. It's not, we're not trying to uh, diminish in any way that, in fact, quite the opposite. I think we've we've brought more people to the hospice um, than might otherwise have come. And something else that that has been clear through the journey is we have reached groups of people that previously would have been described as hard to reach. And I absolutely hate that term, but that is how some people are described. But actually, through the community, we, we've made contact with, with all sorts of different groups of people who would not traditionally use hospice services and introduced them to, to, the, to, to what the hospice can offer and also reduced some of that anxiety and fear. So it hasn't been immediate and I would say it's ongoing, but we're getting there. So I want to say thank you very much indeed to... Hannah and to Susan for coming along from Strathcarran Hospice to share their journey so far. No doubt there's further to go in that journey and I hope you'll be able to keep in touch. A reminder to everyone who's listening that you can get all sorts of resources about asset-based community development and things connected to my other work with solution-focused change and host leadership, leading as a host, not a hero, which all fits in very well with uh, asset-based community development. You can find that at villageinthecity.net villageinthecity.net where there's lots of blogs there's resources there's our handbook you can join our free online community you can come to further calls like this and engage with people from all over the world who are trying to build their own micro local communities where they are uh, to help support each other and build better lives for everyone so thank you very much once again Hannah and Susan and thank you all for joining us today cheerio for now thanks Mark thank you